all, they were going to try theirs on a Sunday. So I said, Lord bless you. Go get them. And um, so um, uh, we're looking forward to ours next week. Well, let's, uh, let's pray as we start. We're continuing in our study. We just got into it here a couple weeks ago, talking about denominations and church history, some things um, that I believe everybody should have some reference to. And, and we're going to work our way through uh, some things this evening, introduce you to at least one, if not two people that you may not know or not have, not have heard of much. And I think there'll be encouragements to us, I trust, in their lives. Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for our day and for the blessing that we've uh, shared throughout the day. The wonder of, of uh, your creation this time of year is just awe-inspiring. Uh, we had a wonderful service this morning. We thank you for that, for the spirit of worship, for the preaching of your word. I pray that it will truly uh, continue to impact our hearts and our lives. And we do pray that you'll bless the things of our church. Our prayer list has many needs on it. We pray for those. I pray that you'll bless the um, uh, event this coming week with our fall festival as we reach into our community and invite them here. And I pray that you'll bless that and uh, other needs that we have as uh, we look to, toward our calendar and lots of events and activities. We pray that will all be done for your glory. I pray that you'll bless our time this evening as we gather here to discuss these topics. I pray that you'll bless each of the classes as uh, they gather. And may it be a profitable time, enjoyable time for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are indeed working our way into um, this study on a little bit of church history and Christian denominations. And we're still kind of in the shallow end of the pool of this, so we'll work our way uh, into more of that detail of the denominations in the weeks ahead and introduce you to, to a list of people that if you've heard of, it's probably been a while since you've heard of them, but I tend to find most people haven't heard of some of these folks, and I'll have a couple to introduce you before you finish tonight. If you, last time, if you remember, we, we covered the first thousand years since the church. I'm going to do a real quick review of that, because if you're like me, a couple of weeks is all it takes sometimes to forget everything. So I'm going to do a quick review of that, and then jump us back in, and then we're going to look at tonight uh, just the next 500 years, right? So we're not going to, uh, we shouldn't have any trouble doing 500 years in 40 minutes or so, but uh, that's what we're looking at. So let's take a kind of a half step back. Before we move forward, that is, look at, kind of review some of the, we talked about church history. We're all familiar with opening up the Bible. Read the Gospels, the story of Christ. Read the book of Acts, the story of the early church, and the day of Pentecost, and the outreach of the apostles, and the apostle Paul particularly, his three missionary journeys. And so there we are. There's our, basically our New Testament wrapped in, in that reality. The Gospels through the apostle John is the church in that first century. John, the last one to, um, um, the last of the apostles to die, according to history and tradition. In Acts chapter 2, the big event, Peter preaches to the multitudes there in Jerusalem. Jews of every nation, it says, some 17 nations or regions, multitudes of languages, 3,000 plus believers to Christ begin the church. And there we go. And these people, what happens to them? They begin to go back and to uh, take the message they've heard in Jerusalem back to their own communities. And then we get to this time called the primitive church. The primitive church becomes the church following the apostles. Keep that word primitive in mind. And it is used on purpose because that's the term that is typically used 
in church history to describe the earliest of churches in varied languages and communities. That term will pop up occasionally in our study moving forward. So think of the primitive church, the primitive congregations. They met in homes, right? Just like they did in the book of Acts. They went from house to house, uh, Acts will tell us. As the Apostle Paul goes, if you follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul in his ministries, he always goes into a new city. The first place he goes is to the synagogue. He goes to the Jew first. And there in the synagogue, he preaches Jesus as the Messiah, the long-fulfilled one that was promised in the Old Testament has come in Jesus Christ. Typically, his reception was not so great. Sometimes they are willing to say, well, that, that may be your opinion, but we really don't need you here anymore. Other times they run him out of town, and sometimes they chase him out of town, and sometimes they chase him from one town to another to, um, to try and stop him. But that primitive church begins to expand and grow. Of course, let's keep in mind, none of this is done in English, right? English wasn't even a language during this time. The early primitive church met with communities of their language, and as the gospel was taken to places around the Middle East, history tells us of how the gospel impacted these first few hundred years, all of these and more communities. By the time you, you finish that first thousand years, the gospel has pretty well covered northern Africa, all of Europe, and even into Russia. In the year 988, in the capital of Russia, which was then Kiev, as we know it today, Kiev, Yugoslavia, the capital of Russia, the gospel had reached there. And it just continues to expand. And that doesn't even include the gospel working toward the east. Thomas, as an apostle, history tells us, took the gospel as far down as to India. And it continues, right? The gospel begins to grow. And all of these languages... Um, that are represented there in Acts chapter 2, begin to not only proclaim the gospel in their language, they begin to have some type of written form of the scriptures. And as we work our way through this study and some future lessons, I'll have again some examples of some scriptures in those languages or uh, demonstrated to us. And of course, what we're thinking about, and it's rightly so, because here's where we are and who we are. We're thinking about eventually that gospel getting up to the English, uh, to the British Isles, rather, to England, to the British Isles. We're thinking about the gospel heading that direction. We're going to see a little bit of that tonight. And then we're going to think about the gospel as it impacts all of the continent of Europe and the, the beginning of the denominations that we all are so familiar with. And uh, so our goal is to look at the broader, right now we're still kind of looking at, at the, the 30,000 foot view, working our way down to individual uh, denominations. During that early church, you have the time called the patristic period, the word that means the fathers. These are often called the church fathers. And you see some names up there. Um, it's, the names are sometimes not as important as the location of where they're at. They're in, you see, uh, Antioch, Syria, Rome, of course. Smyrna, one of those seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Lyon, which is France. Uh, Alexandria, which is Egypt. And so this period is an important period because these are the generations which taught 
as they were taught by either the apostles or descendants of the apostles. Think about it. This is gen- these are individuals who are just one, two, three generations away from the apostles. And they begin to form much of the discussion of what does it mean to be a Christian. And they begin to preach, and they begin to proclaim, and they begin to write. And these names uh, are some of the ones you would study in that, in that patristic period of the church fathers. And notice the cutoff date is 325. So we go a couple of centuries through this period. And was the church, I'm using the term church, meaning the Christians, especially some of the ones of, of this stature, were they right on everything? No. They, they didn't have a lot of background to go on. We are a blessed generation because we've got centuries of Christian writing. Issues that, that we understand fully, we're still unsure of by some of these early Christian writers. So when you read these men, you typically would say, you know, I might would agree with 60, 70, 80%, but boy, they got some things really bad wrong. They just did not have the training and the knowledge uh, built upon what they were doing with the faith that they're, for their generation to know all the answers. So the church went through some struggles. Christianity certainly, and especially as it began to be adopted into different cultures, started to have some challenges. To help fix all of that, or what works toward fixing some of that, not all of it, but some of it, is the reality that Christianity was accepted by the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine in 312 becomes the emperor of Rome, and through what tradition tells us was a vision he had. Depends on how much faith you put in a vision. Uh, But tradition is going to say Constantine had this vision, and in it he saw the Christian cross. And by this sign, conquer was under it in Latin. And so he began to say, okay, I'll, I'll have the Christian God on my side too. After winning the battle of Milvian Bridge, in which he became the uh, emperor, he then was willing to accept the Christian God. Remember, this is Rome. Rome had been persecuting Christians for 200 plus years. And now to have an emperor say, we will accept Christian teaching and we'll accept the Christian God in our understanding. And um, that was the creation of the edict of Milan, which basically allowed Christianity to be an acceptable religion. A few decades after the Edict of Milan, Christianity in the Roman Empire will become the accepted religion of the Roman Empire. And you have what many use as an analogy to say this marriage of the Christian faith with the political structure of Rome. And that would make a huge impact on European history and even American history even to this day. And we'll sort of we'll expand that thought further and see how it lives itself out. But the Edict of Milan allowed the Christian faith. Christians didn't have to be persecuted anymore. They were accepted. And within a decade or so, Constantine found out all these different teachings from these different communities of Christians There were conflicts, and he knew that it would be important to keep his empire empire unified in faith. And so in 325, he begins a council. 
The image on the left is one of the traditional images of this council. Constantine stands there in the middle with uh, Christian leaders on either side of him. But he began what would be a long series over the centuries ahead of a council. The first council is the Council of Nicaea. And every council addresses some of the big theological issues. Interesting enough, the very first council had to address who was Jesus. Now, this obviously is a, not just an important topic, the important topic to the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? And they defined Jesus with terms that we'd be familiar with. And if you took the time today to go read it, you'd find something called the Nicene Creed. And you would read it. And you know what? It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise any of us. I think we'd probably read it and go, yeah, that makes sense to me. But there was lots of debate over exactly who Jesus was and how Jesus was God and man. And they created, you know, a lot of important decisions that would impact Christianity through the centuries ahead and even the millennia ahead. Today, we, we are recipients of some of that. And you can see the, the councils. I won't mention them all. And you can see a little bit of what they tried to cover. There's no reason for us to spend any time more than just that one slide. Just to see that over the centuries ahead, there was always be these. And these weren't the only ones. Um, much later, the councils still happen. There's a long history of them. But those are the seven essentials that are called, or the patristic councils, of those early Christians particularly, beginning with the patristic period and working its way um, into the centuries ahead. So now you have a lot of things happening. And again, we're, we're flipping decades and even centuries sometimes from slide to slide to get it all in. One of the big issues was this issue of a Bible. We have these sacred scriptures. And there's some over here and some over there and which ones are accepted and which ones aren't. Much of that, by the way, had already, been, had already been determined. It was just a matter of no one had the entire collection. And so the Bible as we know it today was first assembled and translated out of the original languages in a translation to the Latin language. It's called the Latin Vulgate. And I had a couple of examples of the, uh, let's see, I had one example of that Latin Vulgate out last time. And we'll probably look at others in the, some lessons ahead. The translation of this Bible was done by one man. It took him 23 years to do it out of the original Greek and out of the original Hebrew. He did much of it in Israel where he had access to Jewish scribes, scholars who could help him translate the words from Hebrew into Latin. This translation, which at the time not only included the 66 Bibles we know of, or 66 books of the Bible that we know of, but it also included the 14 books of the Apocrypha. And these are extra biblical books that found their way into this translation and they've stayed in there ever since. And if you went today to buy what would be called a Catholic Bible, you would find the 66 books plus the 14 or some version of the 14 in there. And they give some credence to these writings, even though, as I mentioned last time, they were, they were never referenced by the apostles. They were never referenced by Christ. They were never accepted in the Jewish community as being Scripture. So go do some research on the Apocrypha, 
it is a, a, a debated topic today among uh, some Christian groups about the value of the Apocrypha. And even Jerome, who was, a, who was assigned to do this task, probably the, the greatest linguistic scholar from Europe of his era, he was assigned to do this task. Even he said the Apocrypha should not get the status of being Scripture. And he had reasons for it because he, he had lived in that Hebrew community, that Jewish community, and he took their perspective to it. So it's one of those things. Eventually, this translation in the 600s would be accepted as the only acceptable translation of the Bible for Christians of Europe. Because everyone in Europe, yes, they spoke Spanish and French and uh, German and all these different tribal languages, but the scholarly and educated of Europe could read and write in Latin. And Latin would be the language of European education. So it held on, so the Catholic Church held on and holds on to a Catholic translation of the Bible. Uh, there really will not be another translation of the Bible in Latin until the latter part of the 1500s. So for more than a thousand years, nearly 1200 years actually, this one translation was the only translation that was allowed all through Europe according to the Roman Catholic Church and all those who read and spoke Latin. So Jerome's one of those characters that's important to us. He's not one of the ones that will happen. Of course, the Roman Empire eventually collapses. Uh, we mentioned before all those different people groups from around the edges of the Roman Empire begin to attack the Ostagoths and the Visigoths and the Lollards, not the Lollards, the Lombards, um, the Vikings. Lots of different groups began to attack Rome around the fringes, uh, from the fringes. Plus there was internal corruption in Rome and all that just eventually Rome falls. And that, of course, changes all of Europe because all Europe had known for several hundred years was Roman rule and a Roman emperor. And you can imagine that change and that switch. Rome became, instead of one giant empire, a lot of little kingdoms. And, of course, it lays the foundational history for what we know as Europe today in so many ways. Let's turn our attention to that group of islands on the, um, to the northwest of Europe known as the British Isles. As Rome fell... The British Isles was one of the first places the Roman soldiers were evacuated from. Uh, you know, come back to the continent of Europe. We've got enemies down here to fight. We don't care if you give up Britain. But when the British Isles, when the Romans left the British Isles, it was a welcome sign to all the other invaders. Right? And so you had the British Isles, which are already occupied uh, by Irish and Scottish and people who lived on the um, uh, island that we designate now as England. People already lived there. But when Rome left, the invasion began. There were people groups who came from east of England, from the lands that we know today as Scandinavia. There were a group of people called the Saxons. There were a group of people called the Angles. There were a group of people called the Jutes. And then there were some, uh, Vikings would be included in some of that. Then you had some people along the northern part of Europe. They just said, wow, the, Rus the, the Romans have left. Let's just go see what we can get. 
and they, moved, they invaded the island. They began to live there. They began to intermarry. The Jutes, as a people group, kind of disappear from the, from the history of England. And what happens is the two primary groups that remain in their heritage are the Angles and the Saxons. And you've all probably heard the term Anglo-Saxons. That's where those heritage of people come from. They were originally in Scandinavia, and they came over to England, and they established themselves there. And a form of language called Saxon, or Saxony English, would be known as today Old English, which none of us can read. It's a true foreign language to us today. And the Germanic groups, which are people from the mainland of Europe, working their way across the, the channel there uh, to get to England. So for hundreds of years, this settlement was taking place. And the Anglo-Saxons have their list of kings and their, their whole feudal system of how they operated a country uh, becomes set in place. It's during this time also that Rome officially comes to England. Uh, the, the Pope, uh, this would be Pope Gregory I, in 596 appointed a man named Augustine to come and lead a group to the British Isles to convert the pagans. One of the most important issues to remember with all of that is to remember Christianity had been in the British Isles for 200 or so years before the Catholics ever got there. And indeed, there were still pagans, but there was a... A, um, um, a presence of Christianity already there. What Rome did was they sent a cohort of about 40 people, including the leader of the group there, and they came to the king and the queen and said, we come from Rome. I'll paraphrase it, right? We come from Rome, and we're here to establish a partnership with you and to bring our faith formally to this land. So again, Christianity had been there. It's just that Catholics hadn't been there. And so they established um, a church there called Canterbury. And the church of Canterbury would become um, the center of the religious movement all across England. And um, still today it is. We recently saw the Qu Queen Elizabeth II, right, and all the ceremony there at Canterbury. So Rome officially comes to England. And from 597 forward, almost 400, 400 plus years, we'll see that in a later lesson, England will be Catholic. And that Catholic influence is as embedded in the English culture as it would be everywhere else in Europe. And Catholic, if you were, and think about it too, if you lived in Europe from... Uh, let's say, third or fourth century, all the way up till the 1500s, and you claim to be a Christian, there was pretty much only one option to be a Christian, and that was to be a Catholic Christian, because there were no other options on the table. If you read through that period of church history, there were some smaller groups here and there that sort of pop up, but you know what happened? The Catholics pretty much snuffed them out. And when I say snuffed them out, I mean they pretty much killed them. They, they, once they labeled them heretics, it was okay to kill them. 
And so these other groups that started up with some biblical conviction and saying the Catholic Church is wrong here and there, they just never really got a chance. And we'll see some similar stories as we finish. So Rome finally comes to England, and the Catholic Church now becomes an integral part of English history moving forward. And we looked last time at a lot of Catholic doctrines. I'm not going to reteach any of this, right? I just want to remind us that when you hear Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism, both in history and in present day, you hear a long list of issues that are unbiblical. Uh, you know, again, there's a Bible with the Apocrypha. They will take the Bible as potentially authoritative, but the Pope may say something more authoritative than the Bible. The church teachers, when they sit in magisterium in the Roman Catholic Church, can teach something more authoritative than what the Bible teaches. So again, there's a lot of muddy water there that we certainly would not swim in that pool. You know, we're going to say, what does the Bible say? The Bible is the authority. And, we'll, and that's, that's important because we're going to see as, as we look at some of these denominations where their phraseology and where their wording and where their per, uh, perspective was. Mary gets not just the mother of Jesus, she becomes the mother of God. She becomes a co-mediator, a co-redeemer. She becomes the one who we pray to, right? I mean, whole long list of things. Again, I just I put these up from last time we talked about some of these Catholic doctrines. These are issues that we would have as a biblically-minded Christian, and other Christians in history will have the same problems. They will come back and say to the Roman Catholic Church, you're wrong on this, and it's unbiblical. The Pope mentioned down there. The Pope will be called by many, starting as we sort of finish this lesson and moving forward, the Pope will be called the Antichrist. And the Roman Catholic Church gets no benefit of the doubt from Bible-believing Christians because they see all the error in their teaching. And the list goes on and on. Again, these are things that are built into doctrine and tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, but they are not biblical. And that's the biggest issue. Now, let's understand, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'll, throw all the, I'll throw lots of stones at Roman Catholic doctrine. But we all know Roman Catholic people, probably. We've known some, maybe in their family. They, too, are people seeking to, you know, how to live out their faith. And they're confined within this Roman Catholic mindset of what they do. There are issues, social issues, maybe political issues, that personally, I won't speak for all of us, I'll speak for me, that I would lock arms with Roman Catholics. I will certainly lock arms with Roman Catholics on the issue of abortion. Matter of fact, two years ago at the life, uh, the life chain, I, I stood with a group and prayed, and I know in that group there were Roman Catholics. You know, right now, let's take care of... of stopping the murder of babies, and we'll deal with doctrinal issues when the time comes. The issue of the sanctity of marriage. I'd lock arms with Roman Catholic teaching on that. Lots of, there are some social things, some cultural things, some political things that they become a voice that we would echo some of those very same thoughts. But understand Roman Catholic doctrine is still way apart from the Bible. And separate those two the opportunity to, to engage a Roman Catholic on doctrinal issues. You may stand right beside them to stand for the right of life. 
but there's some doctrinal issues that down the road certainly are worth pursuing. There in England, eventually, there would come a, become a man, one of the most important early Christian voices in England, a man named Bede the Venerable. He was a well-educated man for his time. He, too, saw that it was important to have a translation of the Bible in something people could read. So he tried in the language of the time, that Old English, Old Anglo-Saxon English, Saxony English, he tried to translate some of the Latin into the English of the time. Very different from our English, but he tried to do the translation so that he could begin to teach the gospel to people along those lines. And again, keep in mind, this is, we're still several centuries away from the printing press. This is all done by hand. And um, so he's, his is a name that you hear about in the English history of Christianity quite frequently. We turn a couple of centuries along and we find indeed the Bible has been translated into that old English, the Gospels, the Psalms, a few other portions, particularly some portions of Genesis, have been translated, the Pentateuch rather, have been translated into, at the time, would be Old English. So that's what you're looking at on the screen there, which is, again, to us, a foreign language, uh, even though it has the roots of English to us. And I mentioned last time, this is where we finished the last lesson, that the Great Schism, this was where the Western Church, centered in Rome, separated from the Eastern Church that was centered in Constantinople, in Turkey. Those two leaders excommunicated each other. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? You kick me out of God's kingdom? Well, that's okay. I'll kick you out of God's kingdom. They just, they, they excommunicated each other. And the Eastern Church and Western Church have had, you know, kind of cold relations ever since. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it religious. Some of it doctrinal. Some of it cultural. You know, the, the Roman church is over here saying, well, you can only read this Bible and it's written in Latin. The Eastern church is saying, well, we don't read Latin. We read Greek. And that's just one of many issues. They had different views on lots of things. And they finally formally split. Usually you see the year 1054 mentioned. But um, there was lots of things happening before and since that related to that. Shortly after that, in England, there's a new uh, king in town. The Battle of Hastings in 1066, William the Conqueror, probably a name we've most of us heard from, William the Conqueror invades England. He invades England from France. We've all, when we hear, the, when we hear the, the name Normandy, most of our attention goes to World War II. We think of D-Day. But Normandy is a part of France, northern France, that was in existence for a long time before World War II. And William the Conqueror came from Normandy, crossed the channel, and the French invaded England. At the Battle of Hastings, the French won. And they, their, their victory was, was pretty quick. If you can catch the image there on your left, if you look, do you see the guy with the arrow in his head? <laughs> right? That is King Harold of England. 
And as the archers are drawing back, one of them hit him right in the eye. And obviously he died shortly after. And once the king is dead, all the pawns don't do much, right? And so William becomes the new king of England, and the Normans become the occupying army of England. And over time, the Normans will stay there, right? And they will begin to impose their language and their culture in England. But keep in mind, religiously, England is Catholic, and so is France. There was no religious conflict between the two whatsoever, or at least nothing major. Both countries were Catholic. And William established the Norman, what's called the Norman Conquest of England. By the way, kind of a side note, the Norman Conquest of England is where we get the stories of Robin Hood, right? Remember him? Robin of Loxley. And it's also where we get the stories, uh, the story of Ivanhoe. Ivanhoe was written, I know somebody said Ivan who? Ivanhoe was written in uh, early 1800s. It's a three-volume set, and it's supposed to be wrapped around the issues of the Normans and the Saxons. Robin Hood was a Saxon, an Anglo-Saxon, and, of course, his enemies of the day, or the king and the sheriff and all those other people who are opposing Robin, trying to catch him, they are Normans. And so you sort of wrap a little bit of history in some of those stories, too, with this time period. Another individual who becomes very important in church history and certainly very influential during his time was an Italian priest named Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas wrote what's considered to be one of the very first really theological volumes and he was a great intellect, no doubt about it. And again, he's living in a time where if it was Christian, it was Catholic by default. And he is still very influential. If you look hard enough into Aquinas' writings, you'll even find some things that we as Baptists would say, you know, now I know where that idea comes from. It probably grows out of uh, Thomas Aquinas and his thoughts. He would be a very influential writer. He's an Italian from his generation to succeeding generations, and even the founders of some of the non-Catholic denominations, including Baptist, will often refer back to Aquinas with great reverence. Was he right? Uh, he, was, he was wrong with a lot of things, too. But his influence can hardly be ignored when you talk about church history through this time frame of 1,000 to 1,500 uh, years. And notice you'll always see Aquinas, almost always, as he is here, holding a book and an inkwell. Again, he lives in a time before the printing press. He's having to write all this stuff by hand. And uh, he is, he's always typically shown holding books or writing because that is really what he is remembered for. He was a scholar um, uh, beyond anyone in his generation, for sure, especially in Europe. So you hear this name Aquinas some, and we won't really refer to him much more, but again, if you went to look at some of the things that he wrote in his book, uh, and it, it was given, obviously, again, a Latin name because everything's Latin. It's called Summa Theologica. Um, it was a summary of theology, summary of Christian theology, and it was the first big volume of, of such a writing. Put all the doctrines in kind of in one, in one book. So we come across him. He would be sort of a... 
a, um, a leading voice in what would grow in Europe to be the scholarly tradition. There was a new idea in education in Europe starting around 1100, 1200. It's the idea of a university. There was no such educational structure prior to about 1100 or 1200. The early universities were the University of Paris, which was at the time the leading university, and of course Catholic, um, in Europe for a while. Uh, the University of Bologna, uh, uh, Oxford University would come along. Oxford would over time attract some of the greatest scholars from Europe to come to England and teach there and write there and lecture there and in many cases preach there. But you have this scholarly tradition begin and now you've got Christianity not just being proclaimed from the pulpits of the churches, but you've got Christianity being proclaimed within the lecture halls of the university. And of course many young men would go to university at early ages and they would study for the ministry as the whole structure and the formality of education began to take early shape, you have this tradition. Now, I mentioned this because I want you to pay attention to, and I'm sure I'll bring it out as we go through, so many individuals we're going to look at were Catholic, Roman Catholic priests. They had gone through the Roman Catholic education system. They had gone to the Roman Catholic universities. They were given their degrees and they were given their positions of priest from a Roman Catholic perspective. So you're going to see a long line. We'll start this parade tonight of some individuals who have this Roman Catholic background only to come to a place where they say the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. And you can imagine the, the trouble they got into. So let me introduce you to one of the first ones. I'll introduce you to two before we close. John Wycliffe. Anybody, you know this name? Is this some of, you, some of you? Okay, good. John Wycliffe was a, such a man. He was a student at Oxford University. He started his university studies at age 14. How's that for a college student, right? But again, at the time, there was no such thing as high school. So you've got to realize when you go to education during that time frame, you went to what was called a grammar school, which took you up to about age 13 or 14, and then you went to the university. Wycliffe was such an individual, high intelligence. He went through the system. He became a priest. He became a, a professor at Oxford University in theology and philosophy. Look at this quote at the bottom. I hope you can read it. Scripture is the authoritative center of Christianity. The claims of the papacy were unhistorical, he said. Now, get this. This is a Roman Catholic priest saying this about Rome. Monasticism, living in, in uh, those environments, was irredeemably corrupt, living in a monastery. He called it irredeemably corrupt to do such a thing. And the moral unworthiness of priest. Those are some of the things he preached and lectured on, both from a pulpit as a preacher and in the lecture halls of Oxford University. So he's a professor. He taught these corruptions. And he also picking up on an idea that had been around for a long time but had been laid to the side, let's put a Bible in the language of the people. And then you see his, his dates there. We don't know for sure when he was born, but we know it's the early 1320s. 
he began to assemble some individuals who could do this work of translating, he himself. And in 1381, he began the work of translating the Latin Vulgate to the English translation, doing exactly what Bede the Venerable had tried to do some 600 years earlier. But it's a little further in time, We've got more resources. We know more things now. We think we can do this. And so the Wycliffe translation, uh, and by the way, it is pronounced Wycliffe, uh, that Y gets an I sound, um, becomes the first English translation into a more contemporary English. By the way, this was a time when reading the Bible in English was against the law. The Roman Catholic Church, you could not read the Bible in English. You could only read it in what? Latin. Well, not only, not only was Wycliffe a leading voice, he wasn't the only one. There were other professors who saw this need too in theology. As a matter of fact, one of the professors at Oxford would stand out and read in English the Bible. History tells us he attracted large crowds. Why? Because people had never heard the Bible in their own language. That sounds so odd to us. But to imagine having heard the Bible in your own language for the first time was quite a community event, for sure. Wycliffe would start, a, would start gathering followers. I mentioned, I mentioned the name earlier by accident. The, they are called the Lollards. The Lollards were Wycliffe's students and others he had trained in Bible. Wycliffe also had this idea. Christianity is not just about coming to church. He thought he would do something Jesus did. He took his, what did Jesus do? He took his disciples two by two and sent them out. Wycliffe did the same thing. He took the men he had trained to be as lollards, and he sent them out to the community in the countryside to go spread the gospel, something that had never been done. What a, what a unique idea to take the gospel outside the walls of the church and to have people hear them. These lollards were often called, or these preachers were called the poor preachers or the people's preachers. Because, again, they just lived with the idea of we're going to go from town to town and we'll receive the hospitality of the town and we're going to preach the gospel. This group, of course, quickly got the ire of the Roman Catholic Church. But you know what? Rome was a long way away. And on top of that, Wycliffe had the support of the king and of the royal court. Wycliffe was arrested. He was taken to the Bishop of London, and there on the time of his trial, the courtroom was filled with royalty. Support from the king, Henry III, and his son, who had a high position in government also. And, and, and once the message got across, don't mess with John Wycliffe, the king's got his back. He was pretty much left alone by the Roman Catholic Church in London. Wycliffe would die after having a stroke in, let me go back to, to 1384. Remember that right? 1384. Wycliffe would be preaching on a Christmas day, a Christmas sermon in his church. 
And while at the pulpit preaching, he had a stroke. Collapsed there, of course, was taken to his, uh, to his room there at Oxford, and he survived a few days. Uh, died the last day of December, 1384. Uh, but Wycliffe's influence would be pretty phenomenal. He is often called the morning star of the Reformation. He was 100 years ahead of his time. The ideas that Wycliffe was doing and using and teaching and proclaiming from the Bible were still a century ahead of the others who would pick up that idea later. And oftentimes, they picked it up from Wycliffe in his readings. I'll introduce you to another man who did such. But the Roman church hated Wycliffe. 41 years after he died, he was discredited by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Constance. And they went, dug him up, buried, I mean, burned his remains, and dumped them in the river. This is an image from a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It tells a story of there. And the, the imagery, obviously, you've got to look at it for a second, but see the priest standing there with his dumping out the ashes into the river Swift and all the Catholic hierarchy standing behind him. There's even smoke coming up from the fire. They had no use for Wycliffe or his teachings. But during his lifespan, Wycliffe and his writings would continue to be spread. And one of the most important influences upon that reality was this man, not a theologian, but an inventor. He invented the movable type printing press, Johann Gutenberg, in Germany. And this revolutionized communication and book printing, something we are so familiar with today, book printing, right? This revolutionized it all throughout Europe. Gutenberg's press um, completed and began to be in function in the uh, 1340s, 50s, middle of the century, would be the technology of the day. What was the first thing Gutenberg printed? Bibles. Bibles in Latin, of course, because that's the Roman Catholic way to do it. And Bibles that included the Apocrypha. Why? Because that's the Roman Catholic way to do it. But nonetheless, as the press began to spread and this technology went from place to place and country to country, the teachings of Wycliffe became also part of this. This printing. Wow, I'll be going to do that. If you get an opportunity, by the way, to go to the Bible Museum in Washington, they have a full-size functioning Gutenberg press. And ever so often, someone will come out in the garb and they will walk you through the process of what it meant and how to print pages using this press. It's really interesting to see if you get an opportunity. So Gutenberg Press comes on the scene, and now that changes the way communication and books are being created. One of the individuals who would, who would be influenced by Wycliffe's writings was a man in Czechoslovakia, a Czech theologian, a Roman Catholic priest. As you look at his name in his native tongue, it would be pronounced Jan Hus. In English, we have transliterated it to become John Hus. Hus is one of those names in church history that doesn't always come to the forefront, 
But his story is going to show us a pattern we're going to see repeated over and over again. John Huss was exposed to the writings of John Wycliffe in England, someone he had never met, a, a, a different generation. He's, he just is a long way away from him. But he came in contact with his writings and his criticisms of the Catholic Church and his proposal for the teaching of the gospel as the true gospel, not wrapped up in all this Roman Catholicism. And John Huss, who himself was a theologian, a professor at the University of Prague, influenced by Wycliffe's writings, began also to pick up the mantle of what Wycliffe had done. And from his pulpit and from his lectures, he began to say the Roman Catholic teaching is wrong. That's not what the Bible says. The gospel is not this complicated. And his criticism of the Roman Catholic Church put him on the target list, right? And at the Council of Constance, the same council that had decreed to go burn Wycliffe's bones, he was called to testify and give an account. The Roman authorities said, you can come under our protectant as a member of the Church of Rome and give your testimony and defend yourself and your positions. The council, of course, was full to the brim of Roman Catholics. And they'd already demonstrated their repugnance for Wycliffe. And here's one of the men who is following his teachings. He gives his account of what his beliefs and doctrines are. And the council finds him guilty of heresy, a crime punishable by death. And so indeed, Huss was taken and he was burned at the stake. But wait, you promised me immunity and protection. Well, that's when you were a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Now we've declared you a heretic. That doesn't apply to heretics. And here you see him in the middle of the picture. See the guy holding what looks like a crown almost? He was made to wear what was called the heretic's hat. It was made of paper and had devils painted on it. And it was to indicate someone had turned to be a heretic against the gospel. In the background, the men are waiting with their, with their um, uh, torches to light the fire. And Huss went to his death there, standing for the simplicity of the gospel and the truth of what the Bible taught. It was ordered by the Roman Catholic Church that his body also, all the ashes, should be gathered, dumped in the river. Every book they could find was burned. They wanted no mention of Huss in the rest of their history. But obviously copies escaped, and his writings are still available today, and they have influenced much of uh, Eastern Europe, especially in the communities of the Czechs. Uh, July 6, 1415 is his day of death. It is celebrated and remembered by Christians in Eastern Europe as John Huss Day, or Jan Hus, if you want to say it. Here's one of his famous quotes. Seek the truth, listen to the truth, teach the truth, love the truth, abide by the truth, and defend the truth until death. And he certainly lived out those words. There's actually a documentary. It's about an hour long. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. If you go look it up, it's called John Huss, 
um, a journey to no return. Tells a little bit of his captivity and of the council. I would advise you, though, don't watch it with children. There are some adult flavors into that because it's reality to the time. Uh, but it is interesting to sort of watch how they've portrayed this, uh, this story. He is a well-remembered Christian that most of us here in America have had a little exposure to, right? So here's what happens. We get to about the year 1500. I said we'll cover 500 years. Much of Europe and Western Mediterranean region and the British Isles are Roman Catholic. It just goes without saying. Countries are linked primarily by their connection to the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire, and you start to hear names like the Habsburgs, the Medici family, and other names that are so influential and all the marriages begin to happen. You know, this prince marries this princess to build a, a, some type of peace agreement between countries. It's, it's, a, it's worse than a soap opera. And um, the dominant Bible all through this is the Latin Bible, the Vulgate. The printing press, that new technology has only been around about 50 years. And um, so that's much of what's happening there. Latin is still the main language, certainly the language of the Bible. The age of European exploration and universities is just beginning, right? Remember something in 1492, right? And all the explorations that are going on from European countries are going through this time period also. The Ottoman Empire, which when you see Ottoman Empire, think Muslims. The Muslims now... Uh, uh, the, that empire, under Osman I, when it began several centuries earlier, has now moved into southeastern Europe, Asia Minor, northern Africa. The Muslims will start to be an influence. And um, uh, so it's a, you know, a very different world. In just a few centuries, things have changed dramatically. So next week, we're going to cover the Reformations. We're at the year 1500. Starting in 15, depending on who you talk to, 1512, 1515, 1517, 1522, 1525, somewhere in those first, few, first couple of decades, there's a lot of reformation happening in Europe. We're going to see that term used quite a bit. And so next week, we're going to pinpoint two groups. Germany, which is the founding of the Lutheran denomination, and Switzerland, which is the founding of the Swiss Brethren or the Swiss Reformed Church. And we'll talk about both of those. I'll introduce you to two men you may or may not have heard of. Martin Luther, I suppose you've probably heard of anyway, the Martin Luther of the 1500s, and another guy named Ulrich Zwingli, and his impact on the Swiss Brethren and the Swiss Reform Movement. Well, not Swiss Brethren, Swiss Reform Movement. Swiss Brethren, actually another group too. And we'll look at these two next week. So we'll start this down our path of a little bit of history and a little bit of denominations to talk about the, the probably of the two, the Lutherans the most. Well, good deal. Well, we'll look forward to that next week. And uh, actually, it's a very timely, I'll explain next week, why talking about the Lutherans next week is very timely in history because there's a certain event that happens on October 31st. And we'll talk about that. Well, as we close in prayer, just uh, want to remind you and update you a little bit. Uh, we, don't want, we do want to be praying for um, Jamie McMasters, and uh, he is having some procedures done, and, and he's, having, he's got some infections around his heart right now. They're trying to do dialysis, but there's infection there that they're having to deal with, and he's got some complications ahead for him, for sure. And so um, many of us know Jamie, known him for a long time, member of our church, him and, and Cindy, and we, we just want to lift them up in prayer at the hospital, particularly right now.
And I know we've all got prayer requests on our hearts, too, to go with that. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for our day. Um, we thank you for those generations before us who stood upon biblical truth. We seek today to be like-minded. Help us to be committed to the truth as John Huss was. Help us to be committed to the Bible as John Wycliffe was. And I pray, Father, you'll allow us the, to see in these history moments and these truths that um, we have a, a task before us today to stand firm. And I pray that you'll allow us to do that. Help us to engage our culture with truth and uh, to uh, speak boldly when called upon. And I pray that you'll dismiss our dismissal. I uh, mean, bless our dismissal tonight. Help us as we go into a, what we anticipate a new week ahead that will honor and glorify you in all we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great week ahead. Look forward to seeing you either Wednesday, hopefully Wednesday, and also Saturday.